This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. Podcast guests and their clients may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome back to the Three Wise Monkeys podcast, a weekly podcast that's all about the markets and investing. My name is Andrew Page, founder of strawman.com, and I'm joined once again by Matt Joss from mattjoss.com. Thank you, Andrew. Very happy to be here. And Claude Walker from ethicalequities.com.au. Bonjour. Oh, Bonjour. <laughs> like it. Uh, a big show this week, a big week, in fact, for the markets. And how can we start anywhere else except for the Banking Royal Commission? So we'll kick things off with that. But Claude, what are we going to also talk about? So we tried to stop Andrew, but he insisted that we talk about his favorite stock of all time, Catapult. <laughs> let's let's not exaggerate. Favorite <laughs> stock of all time. Sorry, that's in virus suite. <laughs> well, we'll talk well, about that too. Ah, there, okay. Well, I've covered both of them then. Uh, we have to. There's been a bit of an update there, so we'll, we'll touch on what's happened with those two businesses. And finally, Matt, what do you want to talk about? I'm going to talk about China and its Great Wall of Debt. Ooh. And what it might mean for Australia. Yeah. Okay, that, that sounds So ominous. the takeaway is, if you are playing the Three Wise Monkeys drinking game, which uh, is... You take a drink every time we mention either Catapult or ProMedicus, then I hope you've had two sips already. Okay, so, Claude, I'm going to throw this one to you, and this is a big one. I hope it's an easy one. What do you think of the the Banking Royal Commission? All right, so, well, as a... I guess I should start from the the belly button, as it were. Obviously, people know that I hedge against the banks. So when the when the bank share price goes up five percent, my uh, puts pretty much go to zero. So I lost uh, about <laughs> six hundred bucks on that today and had to buy some new puts. So, okay, uh, that so that was a bit annoying. It's <laughs> not all about you. Though, Obviously, there, like there, there are, are some ramifications, ramifications for society. There you or go. Something that's like the that. feedback. That's the implication. <laughs> but I lost I mean, bucks. on the Australian. Look, economy. I would be lying if there was like anything else at the forefront of uh, my mind today. <laughs> okay. uh, other than the, 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 the fact bots. that uh, okay. my uh, hedging position just went to about zero. Okay. Yeah, all right. Andrew, do you want to give us an overview of the Banking Royal I'll Commission? Try. Okay, I'll try. Report oh, for those of you... That's look, all of the bank share prices went up like 5% or something. Well, look, the Banking Royal Commission, it's been really hard to avoid this. It's just dominated the papers. It's been a long-running process. So I don't want to go too deep into the weeds here. I think anyone who's got even a half interest in this will find a lot of really, really, really good analysis here. But we thought we can't really do a market-based podcast and not discuss it. We've talked previously how I don't Claude especially, um, certainly not keen on the banks. So I guess we've got... Uh, less in enthusiasm for really diving deep into the weeds. But look, Mr. Hain handed down 76 recommendations. The The banks rallied because, frankly, they were potentially braced for a lot worse. Mm. And of all the things that came out, there was nothing really new in the final report to my eyes in terms of what was sort of very strongly um, indicated in the interim report uh, pretty much came out. Um, people tend to think that it's been a, a very worthwhile exercise. A lot of good recommendations have come down. Both sides of government have said that I think largely they're on the same page here, barring one or two items that they're, they're going to try and enact as, as many of these recommendations uh, as they can. Could have they gone further? Yes, they could have. A lot of people are arguing that they should have continued with forcibly 
uh, removing the vertical integration of banks, maybe doing more to limit executive pay. So vertical integration, you mean the... So that's when you own various parts of, of the industry. So you might be in typical banking, but also do wealth management, also so do insurance. Maybe giving some advice to buy the same products that we sell and that type of stuff. And it's yeah. a very conflicted kind of area. But so so people for good reason talking about that if kind If I'm of not stuff. mistaken, I think one of the things that I thought was really interesting was the suggestion that when an advisor is in some way conflicted, the law should change from the current status, which is if the advisor's conflicted, then they can't say they're independent, to specifically having like saying why they're not independent. Explaining exactly, and, Big, and it's a subtle but important the difference. The commissioner right? Kenneth Hayne, who used to be a high court judge, he sort of said this should be prescribed, even like the way in which they mm. say this, which I actually think would be a really good thing. I think it'd be really powerful if as part of the sales process, the conflicted advisors had to get people to sign a statement that quite clearly stated that they understood that the person was conflicted. I think that's really important. I mean, even today I was called by our old insurance broker people who wanted to do the yearly review. And in order to review my insurance situation, they want to charge me $900 fee for service, which you know, I don't mind paying a fee for service, but then I was like, all right, can you just include in your email like whether you get commissions from products as well? Yeah. And then, of course, they do get commissions I, as I well, really, which maybe here. they're going to rebate or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. But the point is that already they sort of lost me. I'm like, yeah, I'll pay you $900 if that's it. And yeah, there's high nothing else. independent advice. Yeah, but if it's $900 plus you've a, got deals on the side. If it's not a- you know, boilerplate template for yeah. something they rocked exactly. out 500 and took them five minutes to put together. I would pay no $900 for like someone to really do the market research for me for something important like life insurance. Sure. And as long as they're not also getting a commission, basically. Well, let, let me say this. So um, the banks went up. The banks were like, that could have been a lot worse for us. Mortgage choice, uh, mortgage broking, uh, that is a very different scenario, though. Their very business model, I suspect, is under threat. And, and the so market seems to have some pretty big concerns about it, too, because shares were down 25% today. And so their model is under threat because the banks can no longer pay them a commission. Yep. Um, it has to be kind of upfront payment that they receive from the borrower, I guess, is the intention. And here's the thing. I've been seeing there's some um, really good mortgage brokers out there that I've seen on Twitter basically making this case that actually we provide a really good service that's in our interest to do it. And I, think, and I actually agree with them. But why I think the market is so legitimately worried is the psychology is very different. One, it's coming... It, the fee was always coming out of your pocket, not indirectly, but that's ultimately where it came from. But psychologically, it is massively different when... It actually comes directly out of your pocket. Yeah, but I think it's and really important because mortgage broking industry is not built around people providing a valuable service. It's be, it's built around people being the salesman for loans, which is why they were remunerated well, there was as a, the salesman there was a for conflict loans. Potentially because they might get better commissions with one product than another. But also, which it's not, not just that. Suitable. It's like if you're, you remunerate a salesperson by a commission... Whereas somebody who is an expert that has advice mm. that they want to sell, they build their business on giving advice and they have the relationship where the client values them. Yeah. Um, which, you know, we have all had at one point or another. Yeah. And that's a completely different relationship and a completely different skill that you're honing is the rela- in terms of the relationship with people versus when you're just trying to like get a product out the door. Yeah. But when it comes when it comes to financial products, and you know a lot of these things, people families might deal with once or twice in their lifetime. They don't have the background, you know. And, and, and 
I found that when we bought a house, we actually used the mortgage broker, and he was great. He was he just basically, as you said, he just did a whole bunch of legwork, presented us with a whole bunch of options. It was really great, you know. And I I, I actually took the view, oh, it's free at the time. Um, but if if someone had turned around and said, hey Andrew, do you want all of this? Uh, it's going to cost you nine hundred dollars for the sake of argument. I probably wouldn't have. I would probably would have thought, you know, I, I value what you do, but I can also do it myself. And I think a lot of people will will. Yeah, but if that, there's no commission, I think people will still like some people will pay it. But the problem is, it's fewer not, people, not far fewer. That, people. that is exactly that's, you know, I, I agree with you. People will, but far fewer. So this is why it's such a massive hit to that industry. So that was that was one really really big thing. Um, others will also argue too that ironically, what it does is going to consolidate power to the big four because structurally there's not yeah. too much changes there now. A lot of these ancillary financial services are now gone, and so maybe people will just be dealing directly with the bank. They're actually going to get a little bit of extra margin now because yeah. they don't have to pay. Uh, pass that on is a trailing commission and call me call me skeptical but are they going to pass that in full along to the customer <laughs> particularly given the competitive dynamics so yeah. there's, there's good reasons for the market uh, reactions today i think it's going i think it will be interesting as well because mortgage brokers obviously had well according to like various sources including uh you know tepper and hempton sort of research analysts short sellers According to them, the mortgage brokers have had a huge role in sort of playing down people's costs and helping them get bigger loans mm-hmm. because it was in the mortgage broker's interests mm. to basically have someone borrow more because they get bigger commissions. And I think that is really why mortgage brokers deserve what they're going to get because, yeah, there's a valuable service. And for the people that could resist taking on a bigger loan than they should have, mm. mortgage brokers probably provided a valuable service but then there's some people who don't know their own limits and the mortgage brokers were trying to push them to their limits and past the limits and i think you've got to look at it systemically there's, yeah. there's, there's like two different things isn't it so the mortgage brokers probably push much bigger loans and risk of financial distress but if it's just the big four probably just overall less of that but maybe worse rates for everyone it just kind of becomes less competitive yeah, yeah that right. exactly and i think that the, that we will sort of lose out in a bit of less less competition but for those people that want to shop around you'll always find some people that are trying to compete yeah it's just that for i think it will overall become less competitive now and people are more likely if assuming all of this actually gets enacted and stuff who knows how it's going to interact with the property market which is sort of still on its merry way down that i was going to raise that up and that that is really interesting because it must have been a consideration for for the Royal Commission, that if things are too punitive here, for the best of intentions, for the best of reasons, he might have wanted to make some really important structural reform. But mm-hmm. what at what price? I mean, could have you yeah, done look, this and destroyed the Australian? I don't actually know about that. And with it, the economy. In, so you, you, it needs it needed to be a delicate touch. It, you know, I, I think that as much as I would like to see things. This, like the commission go even further in its recommendations. I'm very mindful that you can be too ideological. With yeah, this I don't know what people could, expected. I find it. Kenneth Hayne, you know, was a not activist judge. He was a very black letter law judge and who many would have considered more on the right. Like the the government picked their commissioner mm. and I don't think there was ever a risk that it was going to be some sort of radical set of recommendations. And I, by all means, I think he's done a great job. But 
you know, I don't think that it's true that you know he wanted to go further, but he was worried about. Uh, no, no, I'm not, I'm saying that there, there must have been a consideration. I'm sure he would have I'm done saying, that. I'm sure know? he would have said. And exactly it's also, what he and thought. these are just recommendations. The government's got to sort of legislate for all yeah. of this. Too, I highly very, doubt that the commissioner was like, "Oh, I'm worried about house prices." I'm sure that he just said exactly what he thought, yeah. according to. The well, the, the other terms perspe- of reference that he had. The other perspective that sort of seems to be out there at the moment is that a complete waste of time. We actually had pretty good rules. Yeah, that there was all this trouble that happened, but it's more a fault of the regulators themselves and things. If, if things were always just properly enforced, um, and maybe the penalty steep, and that that alone probably would have. Done. We knew that things were really bad anyway. These recommendations sound. In fact, a lot of them are legitimately good. A lot of them sound good. But when we fast forward ten years, and this this is a distant memory. Is structurally the system that different that it's not going to allow for a lot of these things? It totally depends on what happens next. Like, given that it's quite likely we'll have a Labor government in, given that obviously financial institutions have done a lot of things wrong and pretty much without fear of reprisal against any individuals, Mm. I think we could actually see some better, stronger legislation come out of this that will then protect people in the future so if there's there's still as you say there's still the government still has to take action here yes yeah, so i mean and, and labor let, and liberal are wait, both posturing. nothing this government's not going to do anything right it's all about well, they the, said they're going to this government is an irrelevant come on like <laughs> I, I I, I've, <laughs> I've been doing this long enough that i don't i don't i don't get political uh, I, i'm not political <laughs> i'm just saying like this, this is the fact like even if you love scott morrison and think he's the best prime minister we've ever had mm. He's very unlikely to win the next election. The odds are at $1.20 onto Labor, right? So... But I guess where I was going with it was... Since they booted Malcolm Turnbull and then he got replaced by an independent. We're wandering way off script here. But (laughs) what what my my point was is that these recommendations, what is actually going to change? And and yet the the market seems to... Well, it would would seem very early days. Yeah, but it seems to be like, oh, we're all past it all, you know, back back to the the trough. I I kind of had invert that view. I actually think things will change, more likely to change longer term. I don't think much has changed now. And longer term because the bank's image is taken such a beating i think they're actually pretty well respected in australian society at least me arriving in australia only never really heard anything too negative for such an oligopoly um and i think that's i think it's been really tarnished i don't think so i don't think it was says they hate the banks not like they do now i don't think like now you have all the stories that have come out i think that that um has opened the doors to a lot more regulation i guess in future um but i just don't think too much has changed now um yeah, I, I, I think the lending is still just as crazy as it was. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah I went to see the uh, see the bank oh, a few weeks ago to see how things were looking. And um, I won't, won't name which bank it was, but it was one of the big four. And I was definitely encouraged to um, submit a low expenses of like estimated expenses. Mm. And I was kind of like, I was, I was the opposite. Right? I was like, no, nah, no, we eat out. We're going <laughs> to yeah. spend more than that. Like, oh, but think about what you will be saving once you do have, you know, this big loan and you'll be so much what more. What if you just ate two minute noodles? And yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it's, it's just so bizarre. I was just thinking yeah. that I was expecting the opposite. I was kind of interested just to see how much things had tightened, but no. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah it's super interesting so there's still further to go I think yeah. I think this is the reality of the situation there's a big song and dance about banks tightening and all this sort of stuff but it's they'll still lend you a lifetime of servitude yeah I, you know what I think it would have been would have been like a really nice not a silver bullet but a, I think when you put individuals um, 
you expose them to criminal litigation. I think that changes That's it. what changes that, it. That changes it because at the moment, like if you get, you know, if you do something a bit naughty, you might lose your job and your bonus and, you know, maybe the company pays a bit of a fine, but it's a cost of doing business if you want to take a cynical view. If the CEO can go to jail or whoever executive is in charge of that and you can prove that they deliberately, you know, willfully did something wrong, you're going to jail for 10 years, I would imagine behavior improves really radically after that. Yeah, nice. So oh. I think I think the if it's safe to say no, no one here's um, racing in to buy bank shares anytime soon, despite what the, the market's initial reaction is. That a fair? Comment? Yeah, that's fair. I think a lot of other macro macro views that I have, at least for me. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, we know what you think. Claude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we're the better problem, Mister <laughs> <laughs> Burn It to the Ground, because oh, I'm sure Burn It to the Ground. I was like, I'm the only one here that owns property, like. All right, what are we going to talk about next? I think you're going to talk about a couple of companies. Oh, okay, glasses at the ready. Which you want to start with, the good one or the bad one? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, very quickly, I'll just direct you back to the podcast that uh, we did on Catapult. And I I think it was worth mentioning because they did preliminary results. Wait, Uh, wait, wait. What has the share price done since that podcast? Uh, it's down around 20% or something okay, like cool. that. All right, so it's down. Good thing I'm then. not a trader, Claude. Yeah. You know, I'm all about the long term here. Long term. Long term page, they call me. I had um, a friend once who said a long term investment's a short term investment. That didn't work out. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that is fantastic. Um, so, yeah, without rehashing all the detail here, it was very interesting. It was a mixed bag, but I was actually encouraged buy it Mm. um so when you look at again we've talked about how they sort of segment out between their core operations and and the new prosumer ones yeah core operations that did really well you know 26 percent uh growth in revenue there um and by the way they did that with only a five percent increase in opex so there's i i I, it's an early so the core is the professional sports and video analytics yes Yep, all the wearables devices not the prosumer not the stuff for the uh sub elite athletes yeah um, who are athletes well beyond any of our capabilities. That's not what they call them in marketing either. Are you a sub-elite athlete? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, that, is, that, that ain't going to sell. Do they call them prosumers to them? Facebook? prosumers. You're yeah. a prosumer. You're a yeah. prosumer. Professional consumer. So um, that, that area's gone really, really, really well. In fact, they got a, really bit, a bit of a free kick too with currency gains as well. So when you look at currency gains, the, the um, revenue was up 32%. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because they had some pretty ambitious targets for that segment and they're actually ahead of that pace at the moment. So based on what they said they should be able to do for the full year, uh, I think they're very very much on track. Given where their strongest quarter tends to be, I think they're very much on track to beat that, which is always which looks good and is a core part of my thesis. Uh, what was interesting was that the prosumer side of things, uh, yeah, they saw a doubling of units sold. They saw a doubling of their revenue there. Only problem is they had previously guided the market to expect three and a half times to four times uplift in that. They had mm. a really dis- disappointing uh, December quarter there. So they doubled from one well, unit to they two had, units. They had to... Do- <laughs> 100%, baby. 100%. <laughs> no, they but had, yeah, to, they so had to justify all the money they've been wasting on it. They, had to, like they had to grow a, a lot faster than that to be... Close to successful. Absolutely. So why is that good news? Well, it's not good news. In a a perfect world, that just would have worked. And and by the way, it's a legitimately huge, huge market. Someone will win it at some point and someone will make a lot of money from it. But they haven't haven't executed well. So so given that that hasn't worked out, the the next... the worst thing that could happen is that they just doggedly just continue to throw huge sums of money at to try and make it work and just basically, you know, waste a whole bunch of shareholder capital. 
What was interesting is reading between the lines, and perhaps you have to more. read too much between the lines here. They they indicated very very strongly that well, in fact, they said that we are reviewing our investment yeah. here. We're we'll going to cut cutting, about three yeah. million dollars in costs costs out of, of this area. We'll have more to say when we report our, our half year results in February, which I took it to mean they're going to put a bullet in this thing. Either it starts to really really perform uh, in the next little while, or they're going to put a bullet in it, and that is good news because my the core of my thesis is everyone at home would know is that once you strip that out, you are left with a far, far stronger business um, and and one that is worth a lot more than I think it's worth at the moment. Yeah, nice. It kind of suck if you're working in that division reading that update, don't you think? Like, what do you mean you're <laughs> reviewing wait, wait, your investment? Yeah, what's that about? <laughs> Um, yeah, so I, I think that that I think the move away from the trying to win the prosumer is probably the right call at this stage. Um, I I get the big picture why people were excited about a couple of years ago, but they they haven't been able to execute it very well. It's it's yeah. it's a very different model of selling to go out and sell to consumers. Yeah, um, and I think the world started to change with like Fitbits and Apple Watches. We talked about this before, yeah, yeah. but there becomes more of a possibility that that your your product becomes a feature of another yeah. product, you know? And it, obviously it's not there yet. They have they have better hardware and technology. It's just whether that could come over the next few generations. But as you say, it's a different market. I mean, the, mm. the sales, the, the whole sales process is very, very, very different as well. And it was yeah. just, it was, it was, it was an overreach and it was done too soon. And, and all in some ways, I mean, you can see, you can see the argument. You remember, it's, they, they said, we've got the technology, right? We've got the IP. All we need to do is just make a, a pared down version. We can sell it to prosumers and just huge amounts of synergy and all of that other kind of stuff. Which, well, it turns out that doesn't seem to be okay. the case. You've like well done on the bull thesis. Um, I think. Here we go. <laughs> so the first the first thing is there's a lesson for me here. When I first at, at a certain time, I was an advocate for buying catapult shares, and once they sort of announced this foray into prosumer. I was very slow to realize how bad that would be. And so I took losses when I should have sold quickly. Mm-hmm. So mere culpa on that. Secondly, I've heard this or variations of this thesis, not just from you, but from other people that also like catapult. It's basically saying, look at the segment profit. Oh man, of- put them in touch. I, misery loves company. I, I need to chat to these You guys. know them, you know them. <laughs> I love a bit of confirmation bias. <laughs> Look at the segment profit of, you know, the elite wearables thing, which mm. I yeah. think Matt might have a, a view on that particular point. Yeah. So I think my, my big problem with it is duh. So yeah, so everyone talks about EBITDA for this company, but it kind of ignores that. So EBITDA excluding depreciation and amortization. Um, But there's a very (laughs) so everyone adds up those and goes, oh, this is a great business. Look at all this EBITDA. It's making. And they're what are they saying? Like around twelve million in EBITDA this this year. Yeah, Um, yeah, maybe even a bit more. And it's it's very big. It's it's almost as big as their cost of goods sold. And I think the reason is that this is. Uh, mostly hardware, or it was a very hardware-heavy business, um, which then that cost needs to be spread over subsequent co- yeah. you know, periods. Yeah. Um, so it's just something to keep in mind that it's a very large segment of cost that doesn't get accounted for there. Yep. And then you've got this big corporate expense, which is over $10 million. I'm not sure how I much I think that's killer. So yeah. you've got... This is the one that I love. Now, the bit the point is be- beautiful. Thank you f- close, for that. But the corporate expense one is just the absolute bit of logic that should... Um, catching your throat if you like the company because this is one of those choke you should should choke on that (laughs) this is one of those either or things right because either there are expenses that um, 
should probably be put in one of the segments. We yeah. don't know which, mm-hmm. but we do know it's... It makes it... It's very hard to really understand a segment. Yeah, they don't exactly. Split it up but because these corporate costs are so high, either there are costs that really should go in a segment, mm-hmm. in which case the segment profits are not as good. Now, yeah. if it's costs that really should be in the elite wearables segment, then the whole part of the business that everyone says is so valuable is mm-hmm. probably actually less valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's not great. Mm. And then... So that's one possibility. Or, come on, how has a company this size got corporate so- corporate costs along yeah. that side? Like, just compare ground. the corporate I, costs I, 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 to Prometicus or something. Point. Totally. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. It's ridiculous. So, Very poor. So either they're profligate. Yeah. Or one of their businesses, most likely yeah. the elite wearables, is actually not as profitable as and it would I, seem. I think the best outcome is that they're profligate, right? Because if the yes. businesses themselves are not that yeah. good, then you've just got these businesses so that aren't very good. Buyers at today's price are literally hoping that management who they think are profligate will, A, kill one of their profligacies, which is this whole prosumer thing, and do so you know, with minimum fuss in the quickest possible time, and then B, magically like Pulling their belt. Yeah. Again, we said we weren't going to re-examine the whole thesis. <laughs> all I'm saying but, is, yeah. all I'm saying is, the core business continues to go very well, and they've made very strong indications that they're moving away from that. So and make of yeah, that as you that will. That core business will be able to continue to fund their corporate costs for many years to come. Uh, yeah. Look, I'll just finish by saying, if 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 you they hit their full year guidance, which I've just reiterated to say they would. And you can uh, you can thumb suck maybe a fifteen percent growth in annual sales over the next couple of years, which is slower than what they've historically done, and still very much the early part of their journey. Even if you expense every single last cent of depreciation and amortization, uh, even if you account for every single corporate cost that that's in there, you've still got a business that is fast approaching break even. It's still going to be a loss, but in twenty twenty one, they they should be uh, sorry. Uh, yeah, in yeah, 2021, yeah. they they actually they actually have some real potential to do it. So, again, that there it is. I thought I'd update you guys on that. The other one that I wanted to update on was EnviroSuite. So we talked about this before as well. This had a 30% pop the other day, which sounds fantastic. But you know, they got these guys do this just on an average day. It's so thin and and, and a liquid. But what was but really it's up significantly since you first talked about it? To, yeah, uh, it is. The, yeah, yeah, this okay. one more than makes up for your catapult tip. Yeah. Well, look, I I don't. I don't think this has played out yet and I'm not in any rush to sell whatsoever. I still think it's cheap. So what? basically, as if you listen to the first episode on that we did on EnviroSuite, you know that they had some very ambitious targets. They're wanting to sort of double their recurring revenue this year. That would be $6 million. Um, towards the end of last year, it looks like they're a little bit below pace. They came out, they updated the market. They've already secured $5 million in annual recurring revenue as of the start of February. So they've got five more months to get one more million dollars in there. So it's very, very, very likely that they will beat this very ambitious target, which is a really, 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 really great result. Um, and just gives me some more strength in the company. The market was right five to go really? up as much as it, as much as it did. <laughs> Say what, sorry? Five reallys before great. Oh, I should have added a six. <laughs> Almost nice. dead. Enjoy it. I thought it was good too. I actually bought some shares, so I didn't have to watch you have all, <laughs> all of the, the glory. You should do the same for Catapult. <laughs> Ching. Uh, I will that- when they do some massive outperformance, like what it appears EnviroSuite may have. Let's say China. 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 China.
You go over to China. 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 You take China. 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 I love them. China. Matt. China. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Tell us about China. Yeah, so I thought I, I thought I'd uh, I've just finished reading another book on it um, called China's Great Wall of Debt. So I haven't been focused on so China a for a couple title? of years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I thought I'd give a quick overview of I guess China and what it means for Australia. Quick, it's like a quick, a overview. quick overview of Catapult, man. That's just that sounds hard. It's a very it's a very um, mysterious country in a lot of ways because yeah. you know it's got a communist government that doesn't like to release a lot of information. So even you know the last hundred years of history, it's hard to find out anything true. But um, yeah, so it's an interesting book. Um, a kind of a guy on the ground and has been living there as a journalist and wrote a book. Which okay. I, I wonder if he's still living oh, there. Oh, a Westerner? Or, yeah, yeah, a Westerner who had learned Chinese from a very young age okay. um, and yeah, kind of cross. Yeah. So yeah, interesting book. And um, yeah, so I guess the, the the big stepping back a bit for China. So it's been it, one thing that's quite mysterious is how it's been able to grow um, so fast for so long. And so I thought I'd just touch on that quickly. So there's a couple of components to it. Um, and it's it's kind of known as the authorita- authoritarian investment growth model, um, uh, which is essentially you have a very strong government. So that's the first ingredient. This has been done many times before. I think that's the interesting thing. Mm-hmm. Every every country that successfully adopted it has grown faster than the one before. Going back to like pre-World War II Germany, Nazi Germany oh, that okay. did this model of very heavy investment. Right. Soviet Union did for a long time until it fell apart. Um, is and this China what they is call a, the so-called com- command economy? It's similar to that, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So essentially what you do is you have a very strong government because you mm-hmm. need that to do the rest. Yep. Do and as then, we say or we throw you yeah. in jail. And then effectively yeah. you confiscate effectively confiscate wealth from the people. Mm-hmm. And so you do that through a number of different ways. You have high taxes. Is that called communism? Yeah. No, uh, <laughs> Sorry. Communism would be just taking it. Yeah. yeah and sure. then the next thing is what you do with it, I guess. Right. So you, you um, take as much, take the wealth. And there's a lot of different ways you can do that. You can not pay them a good interest rate and then, you know, lend it out at a high interest rate. You can have your currency be super depreciated for a long time. So you, you know, it's like that's effectively a tax on international consumption, right? Yeah. So all these things you can do and none of them, you don't just go and take the money because obviously that's you cause a revolt too much if you do that too directly. But you do all this and you have a, a large uh, pool of capital. And instead of that normally being spent on consumption, which is how most of the world would be driven by consumption, you put that into heavy investment. Mm-hmm. So that's the investment part of the investment and growth model. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that... And when you're saying, it's, I mean, there's been various stages of this, yeah. but I guess predominantly it was sort of in industrial output. Industrial kind of output, yeah. yeah. So the first big phase was exports. So that's what everyone does. Japan did this as well until they came unstuck. So it's right. not necessarily like a full-on dictatorship you need to do it. There's different ways you can do it. But you take all the resources and invest them very heavily okay. and you export that is normally what you do um, initially. So uh, that's what China did for a very long time. Yeah. Up until about 2007, 2008. With GFC? Yeah. yeah. The, one was a GFC, so all that demand went away. Mm. And the other is at a certain point, you become such a large share of the global economy that you, there's no demand out there to buy your products. So right. Uh, both of them, Japan. Is that and like an China, overcapacity? It's kind of like it's just like you just. There's only so much the world wants to buy, basically. Right. So if you get up to like over twenty percent of you know total exports for the world, there's which only you, so much. Which, which is where they are. Yeah, which was where they got up to. Yeah. I'm not sure how that relative share breaks down today. Yeah. Um, and everyone's kind of hit around that same limit, which is quite interesting. So Japan hit wow. around the same limit, okay. and so then at that point you need to do something else, and so that's when China airports, um, yeah, bridges, exactly, apartments drove very heavy. Um, investment and infrastructure and created a vast wave of debt Mm. and they've kind of never really got off that train since then so how do you you get off that train 
It's it's a very good question. Yeah. Uh, in, a, in a market economy, you'd have a financial crisis ah, <laughs> and wipe it all down yeah, and start again. Yep. Um, and they've kind of been Creative grappling with that. Creative yeah. destruction or something. So, cool. Yeah. So China has more debt now than the United States. You know, they've added hundred and over one hundred and fifty percent of of debt of GDP in the last decade. Wow. It's extremely fast. So it's growing much faster than GDP. Yeah. Um, and that's how they're effectively growing. Okay. So it starts to hit a point though where you can't invest in anything productive anymore and that's basically the state that china's been in for like five years now right. um and it's just i think starting to hit a limit where there's no there's not there's it's not being directed productively and so all the new a large share of the new debt is going to just pay off um the interest on the old debt and so it's just it's becoming less and less effective as they push down more credit it's not creating the same economic growth yep. so now you kind of if you if you could imagine a chart you'd see credit continuing to increase and economic growth falling but that shouldn't matter i mean china is such a nice place to live with the social credit scores and <laughs> all that yeah. sort of freedom thing. of speech yeah they're yeah. great like you can do be whoever you want to be <laughs> Yeah, so there's a is um yeah it's a it's a very it's a very weird country to like study and, and learn about like there's the there's a there's a department there which literally um, chooses the top twenty thousand people in the in the country effectively and um, there's cases where like top, two top what even like all the state owned enterprises so like everyone let's imagine yeah. an organization for personnel that chooses everything it's just so yeah. obscure wow. to us yeah um there's like literally a red phone on the desk of all the major companies that is a direct line into the communist party wow. like it's it's just a different place for that kind of stuff it's like a yeah. bat phone almost it is it's a literal red <laughs> direct line yeah um yeah. okay uh so a lot yeah. of a lot of a lot of people have raised um china and debt in these yeah. issues before in fact going back like a number of years and i'm the last person to say just because you didn't time it right you were wrong yeah but is is the potential argument that they just muddle their way through for like maybe it's very pr pr dangerous and the rest of it but you know even if there is an eventual reckoning mm. that could be 10 years away right yeah so i think that that it's coming it's becoming harder and harder to do that just because gdp growth is falling and they're, they're hitting they're continuing to increase credit so that that's a problem yeah. um they they they're not like another country so i think you shouldn't just like project it's not going to be like the united states yep. it's complete controlled economy yeah um but i just think that they're starting to hit that limit now so it's we'll see if they can if they can rebound again and get like good returns but I, it doesn't seem to be happening and that, their idea is to expand into new industries like semiconductors and that type of thing but again struggling so what what's the ramification for us yeah good question so um china's a a huge um purchaser of one of our major exports I think iron it's our largest trading yeah partner, full largest stop. trading partner full stop um i think the the big takeaways for me is uh more caution around the consumer story um because i think that that will suffer uh fairly directly and i'd, I'd kind of been under a bit of a Sorry, misconception so just, when, you, when you say consumer yeah. story what you mean the, the chinese consumer or yeah so i haven't been invested in anything exposed to australian mining for a while mm -hmm. um partly because i don't like mining companies and another because of china's the china risk mm -hmm. but i also see the risk affecting chinese cons consumption mm -hmm. um so one interesting takeaway from the book was that um, I'd kind of assumed that China's growth of consumption of food and tourism, etc., was like the middle class, the burgeoning middle class. Right. But China is actually incredibly unequal, mm. and the, what I think we see is not really a middle class; it's like the elites. Mm. And there's just so many elites because it's a billion people that if you have, you know, 
two million elites, they are they look like right. there's a lot of yeah. it seems like there's a big healthy um, middle and class. And those 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 folks would be in um, would be struggling pretty tough if there is um, any kind of slowdown because they're the same people that have benefited from it. So I guess that gave me a bit more caution. Yeah. Um, and just that China is currently struggling with with ha- handling all this stuff. Like it's starting to come unstuck a little bit. Can I ask you a dumb question? Yeah. When you say they've borrowed a lot of money, yeah. where'd they borrow it from? Uh, so it's mostly internal from their own banks. So so as a command economy, can they just say, sorry, your debt's defaulted, too to bad? A, to a degree, yeah. And they have kind of done that before in the late 90s. Right. It's just on a much bigger scale than it's ever been before. But if you play that with, through, there's a lot of unhappy people within that. Yeah, that's, is, that's is, part is, of it. Is it the social consequences and the risk to their to their legitimacy that that, that, that risks? Or is it just yeah. really but, painful, but we're going to do it anyway? And and as a consequence, we're kind of okay. We can, I mean, we can start up again. In the worst case scenario, it's pretty dire. It's not just a drop off of imports. So we don't just rely on them for buying out iron ore and coal. Mm. They're big consumers of education services tourism third biggest industry they buy all of our so we have built this incredible number of small flammable boxes in the sky which we can sell for like also known as apartments we can can sell for like a million dollars each many of those at least at the peak a, a very meaningful percentage was to chinese investors there's a huge amount of capital coming in, you know, and kudos mm-hmm. for them to getting it out because it's not easy. But yeah, that's you do capital the same, right? coming yeah. in to an Australian developer that creates jobs to build flammable mm-hmm. boxes in the sky. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that'll all disappear. That's all part of it. Mm. We also benefit from many talented Chinese people coming here and contributing to our society, which is probably in the longer term the best advantage we get, mm. which hopefully will continue. Mm-hmm. But yeah, more to the point. If they start having internal strife, then I could see them getting more geopolitically aggressive. Yeah, if you want to think about second order effects, I think that's a pretty big one. If, if there was any um, slowdown in the economy, it just seems to me like the most logical thing is to pick a fight over some territory where you can whip up national fever. Taiwan. And also mm. have a huge opportunity for all that investment, um, you know, heavy investment stuff to to rearm right like mm. yeah so that's like it's kind of a dark scenario well, yeah. and we know and hopes that it goes happen. there but we're yeah, going to be those in trouble things. for just even saying all this well there's <laughs> there was that there used to be that saying on the markets um that you know when the u.s sneezes the rest of the world catches a cold it's got to be that times 10 with well, china it's doesn't a, it's it like interesting if they sneeze though. like we just yeah all we'll fall australia down is in big trouble yeah australia is in, in particular trouble. but I mean, yeah. the rest of the world because they've just been providing demand to china right that it's more like china's been benefiting from the rest of the world if that makes but, sense but, but we've been well the, the, a lot of the rest of the world has benefited because we've got such incredibly cheap products yeah. if that gets taken away is there an inflation angle no in no there, no where's, is, where, who's gonna make my one dollar t-shirt this is not <laughs> You'll survive without. That's the whole issue is that you're one like the whole thing of this horrible, like cheap and consumer society thing is it's not actually been good for anyone long term. It's actually hollowed out European and Western and Australian manufacturing. I get that angle, but prices are going to go up though, right? Yeah, but is it better to buy, you know, one t-shirt every year for ten dollars, or have one t-shirt for thirty dollars that you keep for three years. It's your t-shirts last three years. I'm my sorry. t-shirts do, but <laughs> my t-shirts also cost about ten dollars. So, <laughs> 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 t-shirts probably aren't the best example here. But 
but but yeah. yes, it, the whole point is I know I have to get rid of t-shirts because I get given free t-shirts yeah. and I've got too many t-shirts. <laughs> They're abundant. Yeah, yeah. we've got to. I'm not going to suffer from a lack of t-shirt shortages and neither is anyone in Australia. No one's talking have about the not, t-shirt crisis. Have you, not, t-shirt have you crisis. not seen like the clothing bins? Like go to the go to any eastern suburbs Last clothing fashion, bins maybe. and you'll like find this sort of you know designer clothes dumped on the street. <laughs> Um, so we've done yeah. it again. We've gone way off topic. So <laughs> the point is r- that r- it. I think that the issue is, aside from you know really bad stuff, they'll stop buying our imports, and that, or as much of our imports, and that yeah. will definitely have an effect yeah. on yeah. It's the availability. Hard, it's hard to think of Australia wouldn't have a recession. The availability of jobs, and but it's also I think that the whole thing that's been underestimated so badly this whole time is how much property prices or property, especially apartments. Has have been exported to people who probably don't even live there. Like, there's plenty of empty apartments, and then maybe some are just investments or whatever. But I've not met a great deal of Australian people who are excited about buying these new build. I, you know apartments. what? It's, it's such a big topic, and probably one for another day. But it's just I know we've talked through before the problem always seems to come back to good quality data on that there's definitely a lot of people making those noise and then there's other people saying yeah but it's marginal there's there's just as much so again we just don't have the time to pick into if you look at the like the surveys of who the buyers have been it's been consistently above 10 percent for years now okay it's meaningful so i guess for me um it was kind of i i had i had been quite bearish on china in 2016 they managed to just pump out a huge amount more debt right. and they went from 200 and something percent GDP to like 320 or something. So they, they have done it before. We'll see what happens. I, I can't see them being able to do that same thing. It's clearly but, not working as well. But final time. thought, why not? Why can't they just pump out? Yeah, you're saying debt's not as effective yeah. and they had to go from, you know, 100% to 300% to get the same effect as 0% to 100% yeah. or whatever. But why why is there a limit? Why can't they just go to a thousand percent or ten thousand percent? Is it? I'm guessing here, but is it is it like what we would think of when we're looking at companies making um, uh, capital expenditure decisions? It's sort of like yes, we've got a bunch of money that we can raise and we can put well, into something. If we're, getting very, if we're getting no just, or negative or very low return, they can just on that, lend it to themselves. It's still there's, there is a financial consequence inevitably. The, 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 yeah, it's tricky because it's it's one of these like theoretical things where they, there tends to be something that sparks any collapse. But in theory, any collapse can go on for almost forever. Mm. Um, to one thing is just the rates of return on their capital. So when they were investing before, it was productive and that was able to pay off a lot of it. So there would be pockets where they're effectively bankrupt and would have to just continuously lend. And it's not all state-owned. So there's a lot of private businesses. But what what happens when a company country just like continuously has to lend just to yeah so a few things one is that you just starve out anything productive so if you're all doing that there's nothing nothing tangible there the other though is that there's also a lot of shadow credit which aren't as controllable by the government as they used to be so that's um a relatively large share over 15 percent of debt created Mm -hmm. is these banks um, and related to banks so all that kind of stuff is I've described it before as like an elephant riding a unicycle. Like, you know, it's going to fall over at some point. Like, it's unstable, but yeah. you don't know necessarily when. when so, it's the really big question will this impact push pay or ProMedicus? <laughs> I, think, I think there it is, just when you thought it'd be pretty indirect for both game with the that. international non Australia market. So, yeah, that's kind of what I mean. My, our, a lot of our investing has been looking at 
companies that are very successful internationally and not dependent on the Australian market, right? Like mm-hmm. I don't think any of us has a particularly high allocation to Australia in particular. Very so, heavy offshore. You know, I do have on ASX listed, but offshore exposed. Fair few Kit McGrath shares. One to think about. <laughs> Guys, we've been going on way too long. Uh, thank you both very much for your time again today. Are you referring to us or the listeners? Uh, I'm thinking <laughs> about like, thank both you Steve to the, infinite, and Dave. the yeah. infinite patience of our two listeners. Um, we hope you've enjoyed it. We'll be back again next week. Until then, you can always get in contact with us at the email address, which is... threewisemonkeys at gmail.com. We love getting your emails, so please send them through. But until next week, I'm Andrew Page. Thanks for listening. Claude Walker. Thanks for listening. And Matt Joss. Thank you for listening.